please rise for the reading. We're in Galatians 2, 11 through 14, and I'm reading out of the <coughs> New American Standard. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? You may be seated. Thank you, Becky, for reading scripture this morning, and uh, we are in Galatians chapter number two as we are walking through uh, our study together of the book of Galatians, uh, gospel-rooted living, and uh, let's begin uh, today our study with a word of prayer. Father, Lord, I pray that today you would open our hearts uh, to receive your word. Lord, I hope that you would uh, work in us, Lord, as we walk by faith, Lord, and help us to live uh, in light of the gospel, uh, Lord, and I pray that we would not allow uh, things to divide us, Lord, but that we would be united together. Uh, we thank you for an opportunity to study together. In your name we pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 14. Uh, and I titled today's message from A to Z. From A to Z. Uh, and the first thing I wrote up here was conflict. Let's have some conflict today. No, no one likes conflict, but we all face it. Uh, at some time or another, when sometimes when we hear the word, it makes us cringe because we're like, Ugh. and we might take great strides to avoid conflict. But there will come a point in your life, in, in your marriage, in your home, in your workplace, uh, in church, where conflicts might arise. Uh, maybe even in the grocery store, right? As someone takes the checkout line before you. And their cart is overflowing, and you have a gallon of milk and a loaf of bread. Yeah. Even in the one place that there shouldn't be conflict, it's not immune. Church. And the church has been a hotbed of conflicts for centuries, uh, even millennia. And why is that? Because aren't we reading from the same Bible? And yet, we always seem to run into conflicts. Well, if that person would just believe the way I do, or... The other person is saying the exact same thing. So when we talk about conflict, there's really two types uh, in churches, if you will. Uh, the, the, the second category one is, I'm going I'm to mention that one first. Uh, these are conflicts that arise from what we would call non-biblical in nature. Uh, they deal with matters that are not directly discussed in the Word of God. And I would say that, that most of our conflicts in our churches perhaps are in this category. Uh, should the carpet be red or blue or pink? Or should we not have carpet? Uh, should we sing hymns or praise songs or choruses or a combination? Should we have a greeting time? Should it be two minutes or 20 minutes? Right? 
the story was, was told of the man who had, had, had crashed on a desert island and they finally rescued him sometime later. And when they arrived, he was the only one on the island and there were three huts there. And they were like, wow, you have three huts and there's other people here. No, it's just me. Okay, well, what is this hut here? This is my house. I built this hut for my house, you know, this and this. Well, what's the second hut? Well, that's my church. And that's the church that, you know, where I go and I pray to God that people would rescue me. Oh, that's awesome. What's the third hut? Well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> we do this. We, we divide and we separate. Should the greeting time be this? Or, or should the carpet be that? Or should we sing these things? And there's no verses in the Bible that speak directly about the carpet of a church. Or the length of a greeting time. It does mention greeting one another. (laughs) Here's another one. When should the services be? How many should there be? See, a generation or so ago, every evangelical church had three services. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. That's perfectly fine. But there's no biblical mandate for that pattern. There's no Bible verse that says you have to have an Awana program. There's no Bible verse that says Sunday school. There's no Bible verse that even says small groups. These are verses, there are verses about training other people, but there's no verse that says how we are to do it other than to do it faithfully. And see, these programs are just programs. And we do them because, well, we feel they're effective and how we can fulfill the verses about teaching others and how we can minister But if any of those ministries are not effective, there's no verse saying we have to have them. But try to remove one of them, and guess what you'll be in? (laughs) Conflict. Why? Because conflicts happen. The other type, that's, that's the second category. The first category is probably a more serious category. Uh, These are conflicts that deal with the matters where the Bible has clearly spoken. An example of this would be, is the Bible the Word of God? Or, perhaps one that might divide more among people today in churches, is the Bible completely inerrant? Means that there are no errors. Is Jesus the Son of God? Or maybe one that divides with, is Jesus, was He always the Son of God? Is He just as much equal to the Father? Is salvation by grace through faith? Did Jesus literally rise from the dead? Is the Trinity real? See, these are issues that the church usually has agreed upon throughout the centuries. But there are times when they are divided. But what we would say is, no, we don't really divide in these areas because there's clear biblical teaching on each of those. And these are important because to deny this is to deny what the Bible teaches. I guess you could say there's also a third category. And the third category would be arguing over whether or not your issue belongs in the first one or belongs in the second one. And perhaps the biggest arguments in the church are in that area. One person says, hey, this is clearly taught in the Bible. And the other one says, no, it's not clearly taught in the Bible. At best, it's an inference in the Bible. At, at the very least, it's just your preference. And so conflicts here can rage on for days or weeks. And our text today in Galatians 2 gives an example of a church conflict is in many ways that third category. Which one is it? Because it's about Peter eating with people. Is that a category two? You know, not really biblical. 
or is it a category one? See, well, on the very surface, it's category two. Who do you choose to eat with? But Paul kind of is like launching into this section here and making it a category one issue that the gospel itself is at stake. So let's, let's, let's back up for a moment and remind ourselves what Paul is doing here in the book of Galatians. So he, he, the first chapter, and now in the first part of the second chapter, Paul's really been defending the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing these letters to the churches that are in southern Turkey, uh, the Galatian region, if you will. Uh, he's trying to show them, hey, my message is genuine, that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, that I got my message from Jesus, and I'm preaching this gospel of grace, and I've been doing it, as we saw last week in chapter 2, for over 14 years. And in chapter 1, we saw that, hey, when other people came in and said, well, we're trying to introduce a different gospel, Paul says, no, 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 there's no other gospel, there's just this one. Because what you're teaching is not truly the gospel. What you're teaching is that salvation has to be something you actually do as well. Like, it's not just by grace through faith, but there's also these works that are involved. And then he started talking at the end of chapter 1, and the beginning of chapter 2, kind of this autobiographical story about his conversion uh, and then some of the conversations that he had with people like Peter and James and John. And then last week we saw in the first part of chapter 2 that he's been doing this for 14 years and he goes up to Jerusalem and he takes Titus along with him and, and he says, hey, I want to confirm with the, the apostles like Peter and James and, and John, I want to confirm with them that my message is the same as theirs. And we saw uh, last week that they didn't add anything to him. That they, they, they realized that their message was the same. And that they were going to Jews and Gentiles. And that whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, there's no other way to heaven other than through faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, now, as one final moment, one final defense, Paul writes here in verses 11-14 through 14 about this event that took place sometime earlier in Antioch with he and Peter. Okay? So, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, Cephas is another name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Verse 11, Paul mentions he was at Antioch and Peter comes into Antioch and then there's this conflict uh, Barnabas is also there. We see that in here in just a few moments. And there's, all those, there's other people as well, uh, and they're there. Now, what, where, what is this idea of Antioch? Is it this little place here north of Lake Villa? No, no, no. That's a different Antioch. Uh, Antioch is about 130 miles north of Jerusalem. Uh, there was a church at Antioch. Uh, in Acts chapter 11, it, we kind of see the idea behind the, the city of Antioch and why there's a church there. Uh, Acts 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Remember Stephen? Stephen's the, the guy that was stoned. Uh, that Saul was there. There's this great persecution among the church. And people begin to be scattered in different places. Probably because Saul was persecuting them. Well, part of them went to Antioch. Okay? And they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Hmm, interesting. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists. Hellenists were uh, uh, Greek people. 
okay? Uh, that, uh, uh, and they were preaching to them as well. As the hand of the Lord was with them, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now all of a sudden, there's these non-Jews who are turning to Christ, turning to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to all remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Why? Because Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many of people were added to the Lord. So in Antioch, you have this, this realization that not just Jews are getting saved, but there's these Gentiles and Greeks who are getting saved as well. Now in verse 25, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And then we see what we really think about Antioch, what we really know about Antioch. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Little Christs, right? And, and it wasn't maybe necessarily a, a positive term when they were called this, but it's mentioned here, this is when we've really started calling each other Christians. So, this church in Antioch is this thriving church, and, and the majority of the congregation is Gentile Christians. And what happened is, is that city became kind of this like missions outpost for Paul. When, he, when you read about his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, most of the time he leaves from Antioch, and then as he heads back to Jerusalem, he passes through Antioch to head back to Jerusalem. So, it's kind of like where he bookends his missionary journeys. And so the event described here in Galatians is one of the times that they're there in Antioch. Okay? So they're in Antioch, and they're excited because probably God is moving the hearts of Jews and Gentiles. But then this group shows up. Now Peter is there too, and this group shows up. And it says that they're from James. Did you see that? Um, Verse number 12, for certain men came from James. Now, I was reading some commentaries this week. Some of the commentaries said, well, they weren't actually from James. They just claimed to be from James. I don't really know. Uh, James here is Jesus' half-brother who's the uh, uh, leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he writes the book of James. So I'm not saying that, that he did not send them. He may have sent them. If he did send them, I'm not certain that he sent them with the intent here of what they're coming with. Uh, the result was they show up, and what does Peter do? All right, so Peter is there, and Peter's eating with the Gentiles. He's having a great time of fellowship, and he notices the Jews coming in. And so what does he do? He starts taking some steps back. Wait, wait. And in verse uh, 13 or excuse me, the end of verse 12, he says he drew himself back fearing the circumcision party. Now, you guys remember those. We've talked about those before. The circumcision party are, is this group of, of, of Judaizers, okay, who, who we mentioned before, they were going around telling people, hey, in order to be a true believer, you have to be circumcised. You have to make this, this commitment, if you will. You have to do this physical thing in order to be truly saved. They were the ones we saw before that were taking Paul's message and they're adding it. They're adding law onto grace. So they show up and Peter starts backing away from the Gentiles. Oh, yeah. Hey guys, what's up? And you might think, why is this a big deal? 
Why is this so important? Okay, now, we don't have the time today to study all of the Old Testament, okay? But the Old Testament, specifically the Jews, okay, the Israelites, and you're mentioned in the Old Testament, listen, they're very strict when it comes to law. Like God establishes laws during the time of Moses. And, and listen, there are Jews who still today follow the laws set thousands of years ago because they're very proud of the laws. And I'm not saying they're bad laws. I'm saying that that's what they have. And they dedicate themselves. We want to follow every one of these laws. These are from God, and so we're going to follow them. And so when you read the Old Testament you find what we would call some archaic types of laws. For example, like you couldn't wear a shirt that was cotton as well as polyester. Like you couldn't wear these mixed fabric shirts. You couldn't eat shellfish. Well, that's probably good for me because it's not good for me to eat a bunch of shellfish. But you can't eat shellfish. Or if you had certain diseases... Perhaps a skin disease or, or something else that you could not come into the presence of God and worship. One of them was you can't associate with other groups of people, especially when it comes to a meal. For the Jews, a meal was shown as an association, was shown as an important thing. Now, in America, perhaps it's not a big deal, but if you go in other cultures today, you'll see the same thing. If you're joining with them in a meal, it's kind of a big deal. All right, so you have all these like rules and regulations from the Old Testament. And so what is going on? Like, like is, is this okay for Peter to do this? Like, he's not supposed to be with the Gentiles. He's just doing it anyway. So we go back to the Old Testament, and we read the Old Testament, and we see law after law after law after law after law. And we're like, why are all these laws here? The Old Testament is, is saying, listen, the law is here and it's putting fences around you to make sure that you're, that you're ritually pure, okay? So you've got to go through these like cleansing things in order to be in front of God. Why? Because the law was saying, listen, God cannot be near you. He is holy, you are not. And so there's holiness and sinfulness, and they can't come together. So we have all of these different laws and rules. That's why we have the sacrificial system. Something that, that makes you, if you will, ritually pure. Because there's got to be this sort of ceremony that makes me clean before God. And so I, that's why I wear certain types of fabrics, or I eat certain types of food. Because I want to stay clean before God. And as we study the book of Hebrews, we realize that those sacrifices didn't really make you clean before God. But there are Jews to this day that still keep certain laws. Okay, so all these laws are here. But listen, we don't just have the Old Testament. We also have the New Testament. The New Testament says, Jesus actually says it in Mark 7, He declares all foods clean. And he goes around and he, he touches dead bodies and he brings them to life. Remember the woman who had that, that issue of blood for 12 years? She was considered ceremonially unclean. She comes and touches him. Now by law, he would also have to be unclean at that point. He would have to go through this process of cleansing and sacrificing. 
So is Jesus just doing away with those laws? Well, kind of. Remember when Jesus died on the cross and, and what happened in the temple the moment he died? The Bible says that the veil ripped. The veil ripped open. That which separated the holiness of God from the sinfulness of the people was now ripped open. People now have access to God. What makes you pure, what makes you clean is not the sacrifice of a blood or a bull, of a goat. It's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's what makes us clean before God. So those ceremonial laws of purification are not required anymore. Okay, but pastor, you're just kind of picking and choosing. What you're saying is, well, I, I really want to eat shellfish, so that law from the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore. You say those laws aren't a big deal. But then you say homosexuality is a sin, and so aren't you just kind of picking and choosing which ones you want to keep? That's why I said when you read the Bible, you read the New Testament along with the Old Testament. In the New Testament, those ceremonial laws of sacrificing and cleansing are gone because of the work of Christ. That's a ceremonial law. Homosexuality or, or, or murder or adultery, these are moral laws. And the moral laws of right and wrong, listen, that are taught in the Old Testament, guess where they're also taught? In the New Testament. That every of those laws are mentioned in the New Testament as well, meaning that it's still wrong to murder someone. It's still wrong to commit adultery. We're still to love our neighbors. We're still to love God. So you have this idea of the, the law, and then you have the, the, the ceremonial laws that Christ kind of did away with. Now, let's get back to Galatians 2 here. Because what does this have to do with Peter? Peter is a Jew. He has been raised and trained in everything Jew. And he's following Jesus, okay, we know that. He sees the life that Jesus lives. He hears the messages that Jesus is preaching. He hears Jesus declare all foods clean, but he still has some things to learn. So, over in Acts chapter 10, which Peter actually re-mentions in Acts chapter 11, Peter describes how he, he has this vision Okay, I'll show you a couple of the, the verses. Acts chapter 11. Uh, uh, Peter's in the city of Joppa, and he's praying, and he says, I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being led down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord. For nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. We've heard this story before. The sheet comes down and there's all kinds of, there's probably bacon there. You know, there's probably, who knows, there's fish, there's reptiles. Who eats reptiles? <laughs> but there's reptiles there. Uh, he says there's all these, these foods that I'm not supposed to eat. And the voice from heaven says, eat them. Oh, no, 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 no. I don't eat those. Okay, listen. What I've called clean, you don't call common or unclean. Jesus says, hey, what I'm calling clean, 
you don't call unclean. Now, is this just about food? No. No. In Acts 10, the story continues because Peter finds out that there's a man named Cornelius who's looking for him. And Peter visits his house. Cornelius is a, is a Gentile. And, and Peter visits his house and realizes that the vision of the animals is kind of this metaphor for Jews and Gentiles. And so he preaches the gospel to Cornelius. And notice what happens. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And believers from among the circumcised, the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So Peter understood through the vision and the experience with Cornelius that, listen, God doesn't set up distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. So now we're here in Galatians 2. And Peter, he recognizes the Gentiles are believers. He's actually uh, eating with them. But he makes this choice when the other crowd shows up. The circumcision party arrives. And now Peter says, I can't be friends with the Gentiles anymore. I'm going to go back to the Jews. And if you will, I'm going to go back to the old Peter. I'm going to go back to my old way of thinking. And notice what it says in verse 12. Or, the, excuse me, the end of verse 11. Oh, the end of verse 12. You're right. I'm sorry. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself. Why? Fearing the circumcision party. He's afraid. He's afraid of what other people might say. Remember last week in Proverbs where it says the fear of man is a snare? Even in Galatians 1, Paul says, am I trying to please man or am I trying to please God? But Peter's afraid of what the other people will say if they see him around those people. You ever done this? By the way, this really happens with young people, doesn't it? Like, this is a big deal. That person, well... They're a friend, but I can't let these other people know that they're my friend. And I would say that we don't grow out of that. I say it happens in church all the time. Well, okay, well, pastor, don't you know, birds of a feather flock together, right? And so I, I get along with him or her. I'll talk with them at church, but inviting them over to my house? Well, no, we just kind of run in different circles. We're not the same socially. So I just... And what you're truly saying is that they're a lower person than you. Now, you wouldn't say that out loud, but you certainly act that way. He's fearing the circumcision party. And then notice in verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led away by their hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy, the word hypocrite, is literally, for our English word hypocrite, is literally a transliteration of a Greek word, hypocritas. It's the same word. Hypocritas is a word that means someone who wears a mask. It refers to an actor in a theater. Someone who, who puts on a mask and acts a different way than what they are on the inside. That, that, that what they act on the outside is something different than who they truly are. And what Paul is saying, the way that these people are acting, is that, listen, Peter, you're acting in a way that isn't true to what you know to be. 
Peter didn't actually believe the Gentiles were lesser people, but he was making the acting choice to do this. And did you notice that it spread to other people? That the other Jews are starting to act this way now? The ones that were just sitting with the Gentiles and, and fellowshipping and worshipping together are starting to pull themselves back? They see Peter's reactions and they start acting the same way. I, I can kind of see them talking, yeah, yeah, this is, and they look over and Peter's kind of like, <laughs> and then they're like, whoa, hey, you see Peter? Yeah, maybe. let's head back over here. They start walking away. And it says even Barnabas did this. And Barnabas was described a minute ago as this, this guy who loved everyone. He was a good man. And Peter's hypocrisy even leads Barnabas astray. Because that's what it does. A disease like hypocrisy living begins maybe small, but it starts to catch on with other people. And no one's immune to it, so it starts spreading around to each person. And so Peter is doing this, but he probably doesn't even realize that the others are starting to do it too. And so Paul, <laughs> Paul just calls him out. Hey, you're acting like a hypocrite. So he does this, and now in verse 14, this is where I want to spin. Because you're like, what does this have to do with us? Like, great. Well done, Paul. You have made Peter own up to who he was. Poor Peter. Man, I bet he wishes these verses weren't in the Bible. Along with a bunch of other ones. <laughs> what does this have to do with us? I want to spend some time here in verse 14. Because what I want you to key in on is that Paul looks at what Peter's doing in light of what he knows that Peter truly knows. Listen, Peter, do you know that Peter saw Jesus eating with Gentiles? Peter saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners, as they're called. Peter saw him associate with people who would have made him impure. And Paul says, the problem with your conduct Notice what he says, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Listen, your conduct is not in step with what you know the gospel to be. That is huge. There has massive implications there for us. Because what, he's, what Paul is saying, it's possible to nullify the gospel, what we say we believe, by our actions. It's possible for you to say one thing and to act another way. And he says it's out of step with the gospel. See, the gospel isn't just what I believe. That the gospel starts to govern how I live. Like It's a grid, if you will, for all of our life. It's a lens that we look through to change our lives. And it has ramifications in every part of my life. Tim Keller said that the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life. Meaning that it's not just the, the beginnings and learning about the Christian life. He says it's, it's not just the ABCs. He says it is the A to Z of the Christian life. That the gospel is the beginning, it's the middle, and the glorious end of the Christian life. That it's everything. That Christ is our life. And we learn to see all of life through this gospel lens. Now be careful. 
Because what I'm not saying is we should act religious. Because if Paul is fighting against anything, it's Peter's religion. Doing the thing. Like Peter was being incredibly religious here. He, he, he's, I'm, 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 I'm not going to do that. See, Paul's fighting against that. Because religion is truth without grace. Here are the rules. Obey them. Follow them. All that, that, that. There's no grace involved. But I also say that it's not, if I could use the word, irreligious either. See, irreligious is grace without truth. Well, if, if there is a God and He loves everyone, then there's no standards really to live. Morality is just kind of what you want it to be. No, 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 no. It's not religion. It's not irreligion. Those two are kind of like ditches on the side of the road. The Gospel is in the middle. Paul says the Gospel will change your life. They're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. So what does that look like? How do you live in step with the gospel? Okay, pastor, I see the story. I understand. But how do I do this? How do I live in step with the gospel? You want to know how? Read, read the New Testament. Like Read the letters from Paul. Uh, almost all of his letters are organized the same way. The first half of the letter is about what they believe. Like, this is what God has done. This is what Christ did for you. This is this, and this is what we believe to be the gospel. And the second half of most of his letters are about now, this is how you live it out. This is how you do this. And as we get to the second half of Galatians, we're going to see the same thing. This is how we see living out the gospel. This is how we have a gospel root that's producing gospel fruit. And how what we believe impacts every single part of my life. So the last thing I wanted to, to mention here, and I titled the third point, the gospel and. The gospel and. And there's a few of these that we'll just mention today. Uh, the first one found here, and then some other ones that we kind of draw from this. About how the gospel, how do we live in step with the gospel? Now the first one is the gospel and ethnicity. The gospel and ethnicity. This is what's happening right here. Don't, do you understand that what is this, this story here, the heart of this story is racism? That Peter is treating people of a different race or nationality differently simply because of that nationality. I'm not going to associate with you because you're different. Paul says that's out of step with the gospel. We cannot look at Christian brothers and sisters of different ethnicities and treat them differently. That's not in line with the gospel. Paul says over in Ephesians that God reconciles us to himself and to each other and now we are a new creature. We are a new man. 
Later on in this book, Paul's going to write that we're no longer considered Jew and Gentile. We're no longer considered slave or free. We're no longer considered man or woman. Like we're all together in this idea of the gospel. Your identity is Christ. Your primary identity is not your nationality or your race. Now listen, I'm as patriotic as they come. I almost wore a red shirt today. Giants says, no, it's not 4th of July. <laughs> because blue, anyway. But I have friends who will not say it. <laughs> they will put America above God. Wait. The Bible says our citizenship is in heaven. My identity is Christ. I've had Christians tell me, yeah, but listen, if you had the job I had, then you would understand why I'm a racist. What? What? Listen, Christians, we should embrace our different cultures and nationalities. We should embrace our different races. Why? Because in Christ, we're new. We're, we're something different. Well, okay, but pastor, up here, racism's not that big a deal. Really? In our nation, where our culture is still fighting on this? We should demonstrate we're different. See, we should demonstrate, hey, there's something different with them. Because what brings us together? And if you don't feel this, maybe you're in one of those ditches. Maybe you're not living in line with the gospel. Because where you find your value is in culture. We walk the gospel line. And it's no longer identified by our ethnicity or our race. Or I would dare say even social circles or economic standings. But we connect together because we're the children of God. That's what Peter had to know. Here's a few others. What about marriage? Whoa. Let's just jump over that one, right? Do you know how many books have been written about marriage? <laughs> a lot. Books and books and books. How to have a successful marriage. How to get him to do what you tell him to. <laughs> Paul tells us over in Ephesians that when God created the world and he brought the first man and woman together, that there was a picture of the gospel. In the first half of Ephesians, Paul unpacks the gospel and what it is. And then he talks about the implications of the gospel being worked out in our life. And one area is marriage. And so when you have a husband and wife joined in marriage, the gospel should be, uh, if I could use the word percolating, it should be going up into that marriage, flavoring everything in that marriage. And I would dare say, if you can unlock the gospel in your home, in your marriage, then it will be an amazing marriage. I'm not saying that I've done it, but I'm saying if you can unlock the gospel. And Paul says, this is how you do it. Oh yeah, I'm going to show you the verses that we already know. Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and his body is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And all the husbands, amen, submit. That is your statement, woman. And I say, whoa, guys, that verse is talking to the woman, so you leave it alone. Then we get to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. See, everyone fixates on the woman. Submit, 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 submit. Leave that up there. Can you imagine a marriage where a wife lays down her rights in submission to her husband and the husband lays down his rights in submission to her? In dying of himself, gave himself up for her. You know how Christ loves the church? It's not by saying, submit. Christ loves the church by saying, I will die for you. marriage if a woman lays down her rights in submission to her husband and the husband lays down his rights in dying to himself for her that's not a good marriage that's an amazing marriage even when they don't deserve it even when they've done you wrong but he but she he does not matter but but i i just can't forgive what he said you ever thought that god never says that to you And you can never forgive the spouse more than God has forgiven you. See, the gospel starts to infiltrate, or it should be a permanent part of, every part of our life. Our marriage. Here's another one. What about parenting? (laughs) There's enough books on marriage. There's just as many books on parenting. How to have a new kid by Friday. You know what that is? Get rid of that one and get another one. <laughs> what? What to expect when you're expecting, right? I wish there was one that says what to expecting when you have teenagers. But I don't think any parent wants to really write that book. <laughs> is there a way to walk the gospel in parenting? See, religious parents only care about the behavior of the child. And see, we, and I, I'm guilty of this, we all love it when a person comes, some random stranger comes up to us in a restaurant, right? Oh, your kids are so well behaved. They're just a wonderful family. We often talk about that. When my first two kids were younger, people did that to us all the time. Now with the other two, no one ever says that anymore. <laughs> Maybe because my one kid's hanging from the blinds and the other one is underneath the table throwing stuff. I don't know. Oh, your, your kids are so well behaved. Oh, thank you. I'm an awesome parent. We congratulate ourselves. We have very moral children who might still be going to hell. Because we've only conformed their outward behavior. 
See, the gospel says point your kids constantly to Christ. Don't push Christ on them. Push them to Christ. And I'm not just after their behavior or their, or their self-esteem. That I'm after a heart that's shaped after the gospel. That I'm after a heart that understands how desperately we need Jesus. Because I want to train them when they're young so that when they grow and as they grow, they begin to cry out to Jesus on their own. Jesus, I need you. We can train them to walk the gospel from the time they're very little. That when they're facing struggles, when they're facing difficulties, we just show them Christ. We show them Christ saying, hey, Let's cry out to God together for this. I know this is hard. I know this is difficult. But let's go to Christ. By the way, we could go on and on here. Gospel and ethnicity. The gospel and marriage. The gospel and parenting. You could say the gospel and sexuality. The gospel and suffering. The gospel and being oppressed. The gospel and depression. Like you name it. Every single area of your life should be in line with the gospel. It's not just the ABC of life. It's the A to Z of our life. See, Paul had his struggles. But here he writes, Peter, I know, I know that you know better I know that you know this is wrong. And did you notice the last part of this verse? Verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, notice, before them all. He did it publicly. That it wasn't, hey, Peter, come here. Dude, man, seriously? Hey, what are you doing? He does it before them all. If you, though you are Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? He rebukes them openly. And I would say there's something to be said here about community. See, living in light of the gospel from A to Z, this is a community project. This is a place where one of the reasons we belong to a church is to, to, to have accountability. We get involved because we want to be accountable to each other. Why? Because that's how we grow closer to the gospel. When I can have someone call me out on something that I've done. When I can have somebody speak life into me. Because it's a community project. Some of you are spiritually accountable to no one. You go from here to here. And there's no accountability. And no one could step into your life like Paul and rebuke you. And see, listen, and I pray, and I pray this. If I begin to walk away from the gospel, if I begin to live outside the gospel, I pray that the elders of this church, I pray that my wife of, of, of 16 years, I pray any other person would walk up to me and rebuke me for not living in line with the gospel. 
And by the way, you think, whoa, that's kind of harsh. Listen, we ought to want that. Because if I don't, go back to verse 11. Then we're like Peter. We stand condemned. Because the gospel changes us. We ought to want people who will help us not only see this, but will gently, or not so gently, bring us back to help us live in step with the gospel. Paul has finished his, his defense. And next week, we get to the heart of this letter in verses 15 and 16. And we're going to be studying now. Okay, now let me tell you more about this gospel and how it roots in the way that you live. Perhaps this morning, there's someone that needs to say, I'm not lined up with the gospel in this area. And we didn't unpack some of these other ones like suffering or depression. There's more, so much more than we can say here. But are you in line with what the gospel? Are you living in the light of that? Let's pray. Our Father, we are humbled by what the gospel does. It invades our very heart, our very soul. And it makes us new. It takes all of the things that we've been trying to do, accomplish and, and do all these good things, Lord, and it, and it changes us and realizes it's not about what we've done, but it's about what Christ did. God, I pray that this, the gospel message, Lord, the truth of what we know, that it would take root in us. And that all these different areas of our lives would start to, to, to be changed. God, I pray for the husbands in this church. The husbands here this morning. I pray that you would help them to, 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 to put the gospel as the front of their marriage. To, to die of themselves. I pray that you'll be with the wives of this church, Lord. The, the, the wives here this morning who, who uh, in the same, same breath, Lord, that they would put the gospel first and that they would submit to, to their husbands. God, invade our marriage. Invade our parenting. I say invade, but God, just become a part of us. Become a part of how we lead our children. God, I pray that you would help each one of our kids to see the gospel as being first and foremost in the way that they submit to their parents, in the way that they follow their parents. God, I pray that we would be different among the people around us, that we would be different in our workplaces, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in a world that's in a, in a country that's full of turmoil. I pray that we would stand different and that we would stand different in a good way so that others may say, what do you have? Why are you different? God, help us to live out the light of the gospel in our homes, in our jobs, in our families, in our church. 
God, I thank you for a place that we can call home, uh, that we could call a, a family of believers, that we can encourage one another, we can edify, that we can strengthen. But Lord, I also thank you that we can challenge one another, that we can hold each other accountable. Help us as we walk with you. We commit these things to you, Lord, and we pray these in the name of your precious Son and our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.